would you like to come see it? And, you know, and then I get squashed like a bug. <laughs> and then I pick myself back up and then I try again. This is The Sparkcast, a bi-weekly show where we explore the creativity, technology, and business of CG. I'm your host, Marina Antunes. Elizabeth Barron fell in love with computing at an early age, a passion that led her to study computer science at Eastern Michigan University. Hailing from a self-proclaimed Ford family, Elizabeth began her career at the car manufacturer shortly after graduation, and over the years moved around to various departments, eventually running Ford's immersive virtual environment lab, a lab that she also helped to create. In our conversation with Elizabeth, she recounts her early years at Ford and the challenges and achievements of her career at the company, being awarded the Dr. Heron Gandhi Research and Innovation Award, her passion for SIGGRAPH, the challenge of starting a new career after 30 years with the same company, and she shares some insights into what she believes to be the challenges of immersive technologies. Here's our conversation with Elizabeth Barron. And I wanted to start by asking you about, you know, your passion for computers and technology and where that started. Oh, so my passion for computers and I don't know, I think it's that is innate in me. Like before there were um, really even like computer. I mean, I'm not so old that there weren't computers, but before um, computers were mainstream, um, of course, there was math and science. <laughs> and it was something I was naturally drawn to. And I was um, also very drawn to the visual world. So I had this love of math and science. And I think I'm in general, more of an engineering mind than I am of a creative mind. But I have a creative need, an outlet, and I chose photography. So photography, when I was a kid, I used to like develop my own pictures, do black and white, you know, photography, follow the Ansel Adams zone system and like do uh, a lot of my uh, creative need, you know, fulfill my creative need through that tech. And um, what I ended up doing is kind of combining the two. So going into computer graphics takes my love of photography and my love of compute technology and melds it into one cool discipline. And, and you graduated from um, Eastern Michigan University. Did you have any idea at the time what you wanted to do with this newly acquired degree and this passion that you have for you know graphics and technology? Yeah, actually, my degree specialized in um, software development for computer-aided design. So I hit the nail on the head with my degree, which I think is very rare for students coming out of college to actually have like, I want to do this and I'm going to do this thing that I went to school for. And I really did. But the weird thing about it is um, I went to you know school to learn how to, um, you know, I learned about computer graphics. I learned how to write code and apply that to CAD. And then I got a job at Ford Motor Company uh, which seems weird, but Ford actually had their own computer-aided design uh, department, and they they had their own CAD tool, and they wrote their own software to develop their own vehicles. So I was, you know, a developer of, um, you know, CAD software, but my my um, 
the way I chose that major was I asked um, fellow students in classes that I took because I liked them, what's your major? And then a lot of people said, oh, I'm in the the CAD-CAM program. And, you know, I'm like, oh, what's that? (laughs) So, yeah, that's how it uh, manifested. So when you went into university at the beginning, what did you have sort of an inclination to what you wanted to do? Did you go in as just an undergrad with just like general studies? General studies. No, no idea. I didn't even know what... CAD was, I'd heard of computer graphics from, you know, just reading and knowing things, but no, I had, I had no idea that that's where it would lead me. And I think within a year and a half of university studies, I had talked to enough people that I knew that's what I should do. So I never had to switch majors or, you know, really worry too much about it. It was presented as a great option. You know, I just went in head first and loved it every minute. I'm wondering about Ford and did you find them or did they find you? (laughs) That's funny. So I come from a Ford family. So my dad worked at Ford, my brother, um, my uncle Ted, my, um, my grandpa worked at a Ford bomber facility that was converted like during the war. Like, so lots of Ford, lots of relatives at all worked you know, at the company. And so um, I I think I found Ford and Ford found me. <laughs> but in general, I I thought the the nicest thing, nicest tribute I could pay to my dad was to get a job at Ford. Like he and he that like that was his dream for all of his kids to work at Ford because he was so happy with the way, you know, the company treated him and he um, really appreciated like earning a living wage and providing for his family and all that good stuff. And um, yeah. And then, but at the same time, it was very hard for Ford to find people that were experts in computer graphics <laughs> at an, in a area in Southeast Michigan that was surrounded by people expert who were expert in automotive functions and, you know, engines and powertrains and, So the program that I was in was actually something that was partially funded by a consortium of local automotives to provide the talent. So that's why I say they found me and I found them. So, yeah, it was a a really good um, meeting, you know, of talent and need and yeah, that good stuff. That's so exciting. And this leads into my next question. And I was going to ask about, you know, the innovation at Ford because when we think of it we think of the company as an innovator in automotive but not necessarily in computing but clearly they were already thinking ahead if they were you know if there was some already involvement in you know trying to provide the tools to students to learn that technology so they could kind of draw from it when you started at Ford was that already clearly that you know innovation was already something that was being pushed forward but did you find that that was like ramping up even more? I don't know that I thought at the time that it was ramping up even more because, you know, I was a newbie and I, you know, everything was interesting and, you know, I had so much to learn that it was hard to um, make a comparison. But I will say that I really thought that the the leadership 
that was um, working in computer graphics at Ford, they were phenomenal. And I think that they they really did look outside of their own industry and try to understand what the latest and greatest was and bring those innovations into Ford in a specific way that um, they believed gave Ford a, an advantage. Like one example of that is automotive surfaces, like the body, the 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 sheet metal that you see is as is a very complex surface. It has um, breaks in continuity for style. It has um, a need to be tangent continuous in some areas that there are manufacturing constraints onto what can be um, reliably built. There's like a lot going on there. And I think um, getting that a surface that looks really beautiful was something that Ford was really interested in being at the forefront of so that they had this the, the right contour, the right look, and that they could manufacture it repeatably with quality. So that was something that was one of the reasons why at that time they were developing their own tool instead of just buying an off-the-shelf CAD tool. And and so can you elaborate a little bit more on that? So clearly one of the things that the technology was being used for is the design of the car. What else is going into this consideration when you're doing that pre-design computer work before the car even goes into production? I'll separate that question, if you don't mind, into two things. And one is like, what was done when I joined Ford? So we did like surface modeling, electrical, like there was a um, wire harness routing. So like having this huge bundle of wire that would connect all of your electrical systems, that that whole um the the way it fits is is a very hard problem to solve so there were there was a software to do that and then some mechanical things like um if your car is going down the road the tires will go through what they call Johnson rebound and so they'll like if you need a suspension that will make it so that if you hit a pothole your tire doesn't hit the rim <laughs> or the you know wheel well that kind of thing. So all of that was done in the the CAD tools and the engineering tools that you know I was working on at the time when I hired in at Ford. But by I don't know maybe five years ish so into my career there, Ford was realized that there were actual CAD tools that had advanced beyond the capabilities of our in-house team. So they actually stopped production of their in-house CAD tool and now they buy, you know, they they have a vendor and, you know, they get um, CAD and PLM and all that software from the company that they choose. So they they kind of switched their mode. But the the interesting thing about that is that was the right time to do that. And it opened up um a floodgate of new technologies that they could take advantage of. And so they started working more into the digital twin space, into high-end visualization, into um, what they called a digital buck, which is like a digital vehicle that could be configured. And so now like the, the opportunities to do immersive assessments, to do engineering in the context of design and the context of manufacturing, all of that is available like to every manufacturer. And it's just like, it's a new era and it's just 
absolutely fantastic. You mentioned that this change happened five years into your career, which is very early on. How did your role shift as the company sort of looked into this new direction? Yeah, so it's very interesting because it's one of the lovely stories I have to tell is um, at that time I was uh, pregnant and I did not know that the company was choosing to move away from their CAD tool. So my boss comes up to me and says, you know, hey, I have this interesting job as a, a technical specialist in CAD. Would you like to interview for it? And I said, no, <laughs> I'm I'm pregnant. I'm I, I mean, I'm only like three months, but still I'm going to take time off and I won't you know, be around for a while. And I just don't think it's fair to interview for a job. And he said, just do me a favor, just interview, just use it as um, a way of gaining expertise so that when you get a job that you really want, you'll have some interview skills. And I said, well, I don't want to waste that person's time. And no, just do it. So I, he was very insistent. I go on the interview. So I go on the interview and I get the job. And so I, I said, I, why, you know, now I'm in a pickle because I can't take the job because I'm taking six months off, which was kind of unheard of at the time. There wasn't like the leave like there is now. And um, so he said, so I went to my, what would have been my new boss and I explained the situation. And he said, I'm not hiring you for the next six months. I'm hiring you for the next three to five years. And if you want to come back uh, after your leave, we want you. And I'm like, that, how cool is that? So they that was their way of protecting me. And I think they did that to a lot of people. They, you know, found avenues and, and like new um, positions for people kind of before everything stopped so that people could, you know, move around and kind of bring their expertise to the company in new ways. That's not something you hear about very often where a company is invested in their employees like that. Do you think that your experience there, like with that so early in your career, really shaped the kind of boss that you are and the kind of, you know, lead industry leader that you are? Absolutely. Every one of those experiences shaped me. And and the good ones, I want to replicate infinity times over. <laughs> like, I just, I want to be that person that did that for me. And even the bad ones, because it wasn't all good. <laughs> there were some like, oh my gosh, are you like just terrible stories? Um, but those shaped me as well. And, and not, I mean, of course, in my opinion, I would never, you know, do those things no matter what, but being able to foresee that this could be the result of that action where you have these good intentions, but this thing goes awry for some way. Those taught me as well. And, and yeah, so, and I also think my, my love of computer graphics has taught me a lot in general and like applying it to a company that doesn't do computer graphics and to have been given in a lot of ways, there was a lot of trust there from um, Ford's part that, cause they didn't really know what I was doing. Like, what, what is that? Like, you want me to put this thing on my head? Like, you want me to like, do what you're going to put markers on? Like, what are you doing to me? And and yet they would, there was enough leadership always that trusted that the, the innovations I was trying to bring, even if they were premature, 
were it, it worth the investment in the long-term strategy for the company. So yeah, that's and and each one of those lessons really taught me a lot about, you know, how how to bring out the best in people, how to look forward and invest in new tech because it's not always right there in front of you. New tech can, you know, be a year away or two years away. And then it also taught me like the, a lot of the experiences that Ford taught me about how to stay the course and not always adopt the latest thing that's coming because just there's fear of missing out with tech. Like there's this new headset or there's this new way of doing things. Why aren't you doing that? It's like, well, because if we do that, we're going to break everything else. So we can't do that. We have to maintain, we have to stay the course and we have to leapfrog to the next technology that's coming. So yeah, lots of lessons from my time at Ford. On the one hand, you are keeping in mind that, you know, you can't break what already works, but on the other hand, you also want to stay with moving forward and being innovative. I'm just trying to put together how you, one, you find out about VR and then two, how you start to think that that's actually something that could be useful at Ford. Like I said earlier, I loved photography and, you know, just all of that advanced visualization type work. And a natural progression is going into the a virtual reality environment and like being able to experience very high quality data that's all virtual, like just all computer graphics. So I think it's just when you learn about computer graphics, you're going to learn about virtual reality. But the thing is, like when I learned about virtual reality, it was way before its time. Like we were strapping sensors with wires all over somebody's body, growing their digital human, and then like putting a battery pack on their back. And, you know, they had to wear a backpack and it, it was, it was kind of gnarly, <laughs> but, uh, but we, we had to go through that to get to where we are. But yeah, I, I learned about the tech um, just from a natural love of computer graphics and then also from uh, trying to understand um, like my own limitations, so to speak. So I had a, I was stereo blind. So I was um, interested in virtual reality and stereoscopy. And I was wondering what other people saw that I couldn't see and how to apply the principles of computer graphics to provide a stereoscopic view to people, which, you know, led me to VR and in another path. You, you're always kind of on the forefront of the technology. You always have to sort of look ahead. How do you stay connected to the next up and coming thing? Like, where do you look? What are you reading? What are you sort of taking in? I love scientific papers on certain aspects of computer graphics and viz. So like searching for papers in a topic, I just, I love pouring over scientific papers um, I love um, different societies that are about um, computer graphics and tech. Um, conferences is another thing. So I'm very involved in SIGGRAPH, which is the special interest group for graphics. And um, up until, was it last week? I was chair of SIGGRAPH. So my term just ended, but I'm still a director at, you know, in SIGGRAPH. And I wanted to volunteer for SIGGRAPH because I think it was the primo place for me to get information and apply what was happening in uh, media and entertainment and in other areas that had to do with high-end computer graphics into this 
weird manufacturing automotive space. So I could take my learnings of what was done, you know, like from Hollywood or from, you know, film and TV. And I could apply that to Ford and then add, learn things from like IEEE about engineering and apply um, things from engineering with computer graphics and kind of like meld them together. So yeah, lots and lots of um, tech sharing. That's another thing I I can't I can't stress enough is I have a pretty healthy network of people that I talk to on a regular basis. And when I was at Ford, I had tech sharing agreements, and I would um, have collaborations every quarter with like I don't know eight or ten different companies, and we'd say, "What's new? What are you working on?" And here's what I'm working on. Here's what's new with me. And then I would even give away like code or like things I was doing and somebody would give me code and things they were doing. And that is a fantastic way to uh, to learn like applied learning. So it's like people are doing, applying these concepts into their uh, disciplines in their field. And I had the privilege to learn from that. And then I would share with them what I was doing. So we, in some of those collaborations, even though I left board, the people, I still meet with them even now. You touch on two really interesting things. And the first that I wanted to ask you about is thinking outside the box and kind of looking at, you know, entertainment and what's happening in computer graphics and bringing it together with something else that might seem unrelated, but works for whatever industry you're working in. And that kind of, um, that kind of thinking, I think is really interesting. And I wanted to also ask about, you know, you have a number of patents to your name. So, you know, you're also an inventor and a creator. Think Talking about, you know, creative thinking and thinking of outside the box, like on a practical level, what does that creative process look like for you? So it's it's probably pretty scattered. <laughs> it's like that's really funny. Uh, I actually think I'm I'm more organized than I give myself credit for. But um, but in general, the way I apply technology to solve problems has to do with some unmet need, and I see the relationship between different um, technologies and and how pieces of technology can apply in areas where there there isn't a current application of it. And so like for one of the patents that I have, it was really about how do you connect the physical world with the virtual world there? And people weren't really doing that, but I wanted a way that would be repeatable where you could be in the physical world and then have a, um, a, a replica of, virtual data like tied to something and so for me it'd be like if you had a clay model of a of a car they want to apply that shape and then maybe see it in a bunch of different colors or maybe put a new window configuration in or you know just something and so that it's a very um straightforward case but it's really thinking about what is the end result of what you want to do and then working backwards so the way um I applied most of the technology, and this this is, I think, pretty organized, <laughs> is like to look at um, the capabilities of the tools and the confidence that um, that I had or that teams had in the tools to solve the problem. And so that's a running 
um, it's like a living document, right? As the tool capability gets better, the confidence gets higher that you can solve those problems. But when when the capability and the confidence like come together and solidify, it's like this is a need. And so like with solving um, problems for all of these different functions and thinking out of the box, it was really about what is the intersection of all of those things? So what engineering does, you know, engineers, uh, manufacturers make things, designers create nice things. What do all of those things have in common? And like for Ford, it was the the product and what's produced. So how can um, one thing, uh, one tool be used that can represent all of these things and make sense to everybody. So an engineer thinks in a spreadsheet. So let's take the spreadsheet and show it visually. A manufacturer builds things. Let's take what they're building and show how it, it could vary. And a designer designs things. Let's take that design and apply it. And so you take the design and you apply it. And then you move the pieces around so the manufacturing person can see how it would vary. And then you, you know, you take the data from the engineering and then you represent like tolerance or strength or whatever those criteria are. And now they're all in the same environment and they're all understanding something visually. So it's really about how do you take all of the pieces of these things that seem unrelated, relate them together through some type of visual method, like for me in computer graphics. And then like with that patent, add the experiential part, which is, you know, you have to have some of the physical world. Otherwise it's like in air and they think it's a vapor and they don't think it's real. <laughs> and You know, you have all of those issues. Well, clearly sometimes you're working towards solving a very specific problem, but I expect you probably also have all of these things floating around in your head. And every once in a while you'll see something and you're like, oh, wait, I think this might tie to something that I've been working on for 10 years. The thing about that type of approach, which is probably the main way that I operated, because if people didn't come to me and say, I need something to do all of these things. Can you do that for me? Every now and again, yes. Like I remember a guy saying, I want to simulate a backup camera in the virtual world. I'm like, on it. Like very clear use case, one, you know, one hit wonder, you know, done. But the the things that were um, challenging were really about bringing technology to people who didn't ask for it. But but like I believe there was a very solid need, and so that type um, that gets into another whole level of complexity, and that's called people. <laughs> so like when you get people and their personalities and the way they work and why they work that way and how they don't want to change. One of my sayings I used to exclaim in frustration was this is not a technology problem, <laughs> like because it's really about people and their ability to adapt and change with technology that's actually proven and has a definite benefit. And there also has to be a willingness to 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 adopt that technology because I, I think that there's usually a fear that the new great thing might also take your job away. <laughs> and that could be scary. There's definitely the fear that it might take your job away. And that was like from day one and first virtual reality thing I did at Ford was like 
some physical modeler isn't going to have their job. There's definitely that. The other fear is, do I have to pay to fix it? <laughs> so if you find a problem, who pays? Like, sir, that is a something that we, I think uh, technology adopters and like leaders in different companies need to set a precedent. Like, just because you found the problem and you found it early, that doesn't mean it's on you to fix it. And we are sincerely in it together and we will find the best way to solve the problem. And if it means transferring money so that the person who fixes it doesn't suffer on their budget, we should do that. But there really isn't a a good way in most companies that are still fairly siloed to disperse the solution cost, you know, amongst the people that find the problems. So if somebody from design finds a problem and they're in a meeting with somebody from manufacturing, the natural position of each is, oh, well, that's something design should fit. Oh, that's something manufacturing should fix. It, it really also challenges, I guess, the way the companies operate. Absolutely. And those were my not so good days at Ford <laughs> is, you know, trying to uh, get some type of a steady state there and accountability from different groups and teams. And like the, the, the easiest solution when you've tried some new tech and it points out a problem is to just not do it again. So like, then what do you do? That's where leadership needs to say, wait a minute, why, why aren't you back uh, trying that in the virtual world again? You had mentioned SIGGRAPH and how that was really important to, you know, staying on top of technology and your involvement with SIGGRAPH. When did you first discover SIGGRAPH? I discovered SIGGRAPH in the late 90s. I think it was like 97 might have been my first SIGGRAPH. I've basically been involved ever since when I wasn't, you know, having a baby. <laughs> and as an attendee for lots of years. And then I started um, volunteering, I think in like maybe 2013-ish, 2012, 2013. And to me, it was just such an honor to be asked to participate in SIGGRAPH and like shape what the conference would be and, you know, um, work on the different things that the organization provides. I'm very, very, very thankful to the SIGGRAPH organization for how they've helped me in my career and in, in such a positive way. When I go to SIGGRAPH, I'm like to the conference, I'm so happy. And like, I'm just so happy. I'm smiling all the time. And I'm like, it's it's just such a good place. And everybody's on fire for the same kind of tech. And we can have like meaningful conversations and like really move the needle on advancing, you know, different technologies. And it's definitely my happy place. I mean, clearly it's something you really enjoy, but for others that might think, oh, well, you know, that I don't have time to, to volunteer to like for, for SIGGRAPH or even other organizations. Why is it so important to make that time and make that commitment? I think it's because I'm at a place where I have realized the benefit of attendance at the conference and the benefit from some of the um, things that the organization does all year round. And I've realized these benefits for, you know, a couple decades. <laughs> and then I thought it's 
upon me to give back. Like it's incumbent upon me. I just, I need to give back to something that's provided so much to me. And so I am, I mean, I think everybody's busy, but I do feel like I'm super busy and I don't have enough hours in the day. And I'm like, you know, still doing, you know, my day job and, you know, I'm working nights for SIGGRAPH and, and it is a, it is a tax on uh, my time for sure. But the, I still think the rewards that I get out of being involved, there's a level of satisfaction in providing um, like some direction and some form of leadership to what SIGGRAPH is now and will be in the future based on like my time volunteering up to this point is like a, a personally satisfying because they've helped me so much. So part of it's just giving back. And part of it is volunteering at SIGGRAPH in any capacity, whether it's for the conference or the, the organization and all of the um, committees that the organization has that um, serve different groups around computer graphics and interactive techniques. Doing that means you are meeting the cream of the crop people that also can help you in your career <laughs> and also can provide um, insight and knowledge to you just by attending the, the meetings with these super smart people that are doing these amazing things. So like I'm enriched just by hearing about the, you know, my other um, fellow volunteers and what they're working on and staying connected with them. So I think, yeah. And then shaping, you know, whatever it is that you're um, passionate about and having a, you know, some type of say in that, I think it's definitely a personal choice because it does require time, but it's like, for me, just such time well spent. I, I don't think a lot of people are aware of just the amount of accomplishments <laughs> of your career. And it's been such an amazing career. What for you was your proudest moment? If I look back on everything, um, I'm still, um, I did um, real-time ray tracing in VR in 4K um, and we started it in 2013. And I think when I think about doing that and having that level of quality that long ago, that one thing, I think when we did our first, like we we fired up the supercomputer and we we had our model and we got immersed in it and went, oh my gosh, like that that moment, it was like late at night on a Friday. It was like at nine o'clock at night. We were still there because we were like determined to see something by the end of the week. Like that one moment was like this amazing accomplishment you know, for me, but like, and then the other thing, I think there's two things. One is um, being chair of SIGGRAPH and having that honor for, you know, was just a pinnacle, like how, oh my gosh, <laughs> I can't even like, that's just so amazing. Related to the first thing with real-time ray tracing, the, the, my body of work at Ford, I was honored by like the CEO with like the highest individual honor that anybody could receive at Ford. And so I received this um, Heron Gandhi Research and Innovation Award. And I was the first woman to receive it. I was the first person that wasn't from research because I was in engineering. I wasn't in research. And I was the lowest educated person to get it. <laughs> so I think it's like it really uh, putting theory into practice and like working in your discipline. Like um, I, uh, you know, most of the people, everybody that had gotten it 
had a PhD. I don't. Um, but like having like received that award in that way was just like beyond belief because I just never thought that would ever be something I'd ever be considered for. And and as I have to ask, because, you know, you mentioned that your family is a Ford family. <laughs> what, what, what did your dad think? Oh, my dad. <laughs> so proud. <laughs> my uncle Ted is like beyond consolable. So happy. <laughs> but yeah, very, very, very proud and um, grateful. And like, they, you know, my dad's still like, you know, you you know, you did us proud and, you know, yeah. And mom too. And, you know, my siblings and my husband was just, you know, amazing. You know, he was just so happy. Lots of pats on the back and, you know, appreciation. <laughs> so how nice. We were talking a little bit about, you know, career achievements and proud moments. And I'm wondering too about um, challenges in your career. And, you know, you've talked a little bit about how, you know, there are challenging things. Um, for you, what has been the biggest challenge for you and how have you overcome it? The biggest, like the biggest challenge is more of a personal one. And that was like when I, you know, my husband and I decided we would have kids. I didn't know how much I would love them. <laughs> Like how, I mean, I, I love my husband dearly and I love my family, but like your child, it's, it's a different thing. And, and like going back to work was just a huge challenge. So the way that my husband and I solved that is he actually became a stay at home dad. That's what worked for us, but that was the biggest challenge because it was like, it was a very terrible thought, like what's going to happen, you know, and, and I live out in the middle of nowhere and I don't have like a easy daycare option to, you know, and people aren't really necessarily coming out to where I'm at. And so there was a lot of obstacles. So that was a huge challenge. And that was the way I solved it. My husband and I solved it like personally. And I think my biggest professional challenge is overcoming um, the resistance to adopting new technology. It is a monumental task. And when I say, like, I would exclaim it's not a technology problem, that is to this day the, the hardest challenge to overcome because people get involved, they have ways of working, they have um, uh, styles in which they are accustomed to operating in, and then, you know, you as some new technology provider want to change the way they work. That is a very daunting challenge. And most of my patents have come out of that. <laughs> most of the, like the, my finest hours and like what I just said were my best accomplishments came out of that. So there's goodness that comes out of it, but it is, it's very difficult to affect change in a, a macro way and to get major groups of people because I wasn't doing the one-off backup camera thing. I was going for the, the big thing, right? I was trying to get design, engineering, and manufacturing to all talk to each other at the same time in a meeting, looking at a really early virtual representation of the vehicle. And they just, they didn't do that. So that 
in itself was just a major challenge. And it was uh, the way to solve it was really bottom up and top down. So I went to senior leadership. I wasn't shy about sending notes to vice presidents and saying, I have this technology. I think it can help you and your, like all of these three pillars talk to each other. Would you like to come see it? And, you know, and then get squashed like a bug. <laughs> and then I pick myself back up and then I try again. <laughs> but I mean, just because I did that, I mean, there was resistance and, you know, not, it wasn't necessarily a, it didn't make me popular by, in lots of people's eyes, you know, like why stay in your lane, get out of my space, you know, why are, you know, why are you bugging me, you know, back off, you know, lots of things like that. But I, I just had to kind of navigate those waters and take the lumps when they came and, you know, take the victory and it would be even sweeter. <laughs> Getting that attention and, you know, get, having your voice heard is not something that happens overnight. And clearly persistence is something that you're very good at. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. It definitely was a matter of persistence and, and persistence in, and also steadiness. Like I would say that having something to show that you've really put through enough uh, rigor that it won't like just blow up in your face when you end up showing it. So like having some type of stability, but then also being very persistent. And then also listening. Like I would go to people and say, okay, tell me about your biggest challenges. What is the hardest part of your job? Why is it so hard? What kind of information do you not get because you can't solve the problem because you don't have the information? So, and then I just go and I think about what did they just tell me? And then I'd ask, you know, other colleagues and other organizations and just listen. And that's besides being persistent, it's also really about, you know, just taking the time to listen. And every, we we all get so busy that we're just doing and it we, like sometimes just taking a step back. And I had like this, I'd go to different places at work that were silent and I would just like take all the information I have and like sticky note and try to like go this and this go together. And that goes with this. And here's how all of these things relate. And then just having the peace to think and listen and then act upon what you heard. 30 years at Ford and then you leave. That's such a big jump to take. What, what prompted you to sort of take that leap? Yeah. So um, there were like a few things like swirling all at once. But I think the major one was I thought the time was right to take the concepts that I applied at Ford and bring them to industry, um, like across different industries. So I thought enterprise clients, so to speak, that are in automotive, manufacturing, transportation, and, you know, um, construction and engineering that the like all of those areas could benefit from some type of cross-functional collaboration and communication. And so I just thought if I stay at Ford, I can continue to make things better. Of course I would, you know, in, in automotive and for Ford in you know, particular. Uh, but if I left Ford, I could like widen that net and then maybe take some of the things that I know that benefit everybody that aren't like about like how you make 
a vehicle or trade secrets, but just like the things that benefit everybody, like real-time ray tracing in VR benefits everybody. You know, manufacturing process applied to the design benefits everybody. Like, it just take those concepts and bring them to industry so that we can kind of up the standard how, about how we work and apply the digital twin concepts and metaverse was brand new. And I thought this is a really good time to try to, you know, put a bow on all these technologies and show how they all one relate to the other. Was it scary to make that jump? Honestly, I was not at all nervous or worried or scared that I wouldn't know what the right next thing to do was because I left without another position. I just, I just left. And then I did what I do. I took time and I wrote what I affectionately call my manifesto. (laughs) So I just wrote, like, I just started writing like what, what would things look like in the next 10 years? And I like, how will people interact? What types of technology will they use? Where will the cloud be? And why would it be useful? Like I just started writing and I just wrote my own thoughts. And then that kind of led me, you know, to where I'm at now. So it really wasn't scary. The opportunities are out there and they're just, they just seem so plain to see. VR, AR, immersive tech, these are all like, you know, real time, all of these like buzzwords that are floating around the tech industry. And it's something that, you know, you're very intimately familiar with. Where do you see the technology going and what do you think are some of the challenges that still need to be overcome? I think the technology is going to become more democratized. So there's like this concept of Web3. So right now we're in Web2. So Web3 means that we're not um, like beholden to the gatekeepers that, um, you know, mine our information and, you know, um, determine if something gets through or not. I think there's that's where we're going. We're going toward this Web3 concept where it's um, they call it trustless, but it's really about knowing that you can trust your source and that it's it's auditable and you know you have more control and autonomy over your data and how things um, are shared and why they're shared and to who. So I think that that concept sets the stage for the metaverse. And then the the metaverse is like this, you know, kind of a th- ethereal concept. It's like, you know, what is that? But it's like that allows us to be social in the way we want to be social, allows us to share the information in the way that we want to share it. And it allows um, the the melding of all of these um, different bits of information, thinking about artificial intelligence and how um, we can use machine learning to learn about what we've done in the past so that we do better things in the future. And like the metaverse concept enables all of those things to start to intertwine. And then like you, you mentioned, um, you know, the whole XR spectrum, AR, VR, you know, MR, and all of that good stuff gives us the way in which we can consume that information. So, you know, I can be talking with you like through this 2D medium, somebody else can be immersed, somebody else can be on their mobile or, you know, whatever those things are. It it frees us from the constraints of operating in a prescribed way. And it gives us infinite choices and freedom to choose the right tool for the job 
like at the right time for the discoveries that we need to make. So I think that's where we're going. It's like Web3 based, it's metaverse based, it's, um, you know, it's more that implies um, some form. It's funny, I have clouds behind me, but it does imply the cloud. <laughs> I never thought of that. But um, it does imply that we have data that's accessible from multiple sources. And those sources may be like for an enterprise within their company, it may be outside of their company, but they have access to it. So it's just a really exciting time because all of these technologies are really converging in a really nice way that sets us up for the next, you know, five years to, you know, recognize what the metaverse can do. And digital twin is really like one of the first mainstream technologies, so to speak, that come out of web two space that gets us towards web three. And for those that don't know about digital twin, can you elaborate a little bit more on that? So digital twin is basically the the digital version of um, a physical representation. And then digital twins are mostly um, dynamic. So they're, they, they evolve over time. So if you're, if I put my automotive hat back on a digital twin of a vehicle is of course the vehicle with all of its components, every nut and bolt in represented in the digital world, but then you can take that and then start to act on it and and look at manufacturing variation, apply that. And then that digital twin is a dynamic digital twin because now it is actually responding to inputs from um, events like, like the manufacturing process or like a road and what happens with the suspension through its travel or what happens if you ride down a dirt road and the stones come and hit your car? Like what happens to the paint? That's a dynamic digital twin that would actually show you how tough the paint is. And so you can see that that process, the digital twin concept can be applied to every type of input from engineering and design onto the product. And then it can represent it through its creation process. We talked about a lot of new technology. What is the one that has you most excited and why? Oh, oh my gosh. Do I have to pick? It's like, yeah, it's like asking me to choose my, like my kids or something. I, I really like, I guess that's funny because I don't know. I don't think I could choose just one, but if I just say what excites me the most has to do with the way we will collaborate and share in the future. And like the, the, um, the, the shackles that will come off of all of us when technology can set us three, free because the information is just accessible to us and accessible to the other people that we wanna to talk to. So that what excites me the most is the thought about um, collaboration in, in, um, in immersive environments or through in digital environments where we're, we're um, sharing ideas and coming to solutions and getting the data presented that's actually accurate, up-to-date and, you know, and we can make real decisions, make the changes, and then everyone else can see that propagate. So just that that um, collaboration and communication to me is the the foundational thing that like really gets me excited about like the different technologies that are out there that we can all take advantage of. I don't know if you have a, an insight to this. But I know one of the things that comes to mind when I think about technology and communication and availability is, you know, there are areas where, you know, they don't have internet or it's, you know, not stable. So it's, it's 
democratized to an extent. How, how do you think we overcome that? Like I said, out in the middle of nowhere, and I actually don't have very good internet. <laughs> and now I do. I actually have a 5G. And I finally, like just in the last uh, year, have this available to me because it, the coverage was so spotty, even where I'm at, that I couldn't get it. And so I'm like not out in the wilds of Wyoming somewhere, right? I mean, and so I think that's a really valid point. And I, I think one of the things is um, satellite, like what's happening with Starlink, I think is a, a really cool idea to not have it be land-based cables that are providing us with high-speed internet, but satellite-based um, communications. And I think that technology is pretty stable. Like, I mean, think about how long we've used satellites to communicate in real time. And, you know, of course, started mostly in, you know, war and, you know, yucky type things, but uh, we've learned to harness it for good. And so I really hope that that concept of satellite um, communications for, you know, high speed um, internet takes off even more. So it's not just like one company doing it, but just like an array of companies that are in that space and, you know, providing access because they can, I mean, if you just think about that model, it's so perfect because if, if you don't have anything there, the satellite just doesn't need to consider it. One of the themes that keeps coming up is community and, and sharing of information. Is that sort of how you operate? Is this concept of community? It, it comes up a lot in the discussion. Absolutely. I do think a lot about how to provide everybody with the information that they need to make the decisions that make their life better, their product better, and that they have a, a, a right to know. And I think in the enterprise space, there were people that were like so frustrated in automotive that they couldn't get the information that they needed to actually make a quality decision and do the right thing. And that you know, some things were just kind of hidden from them because that was, they weren't in that vertical, like that silo. So yeah, I think that type of community approach where we we open up uh, technology, one of the things like I've just really started thinking a lot about is how um, the metaverse has the opportunity to give everyone a voice. It levels the playing field. And I really, really like that a lot because it's democratizing the information. It allows people to access that information freely where they couldn't before. Before there was a gatekeeper saying, yes, you can have that. No, you can't have that. You need to log on like this. You need, you know, if you're credentialed to get that information, you should be able to get that information. And if that is something fun, or it's something that's related to your job, which hopefully is fun, but maybe it's not, like you should have that information. And I think that that concept of community is a really good one. And I think it's really what the metaverse is about. If you had one piece of advice you could share with young you, what would that piece of advice be? I would tell young me to calm down. <laughs> like, seriously, I was so wound and I was so concerned about doing the right thing about possibly doing 
the wrong thing, you know, whether it was like in college or when I was first at Ford, I was overly concerned about um, matters that were very small when I look back on it. So it's like I'd have a better perspective sooner if I would have been able to just take in the information and not think that I had to solve everything in order to have any worth or value at all. Like I was just so concerned about like doing a good job that I think I didn't, I didn't give myself the grace to realize like you're learning, other people are learning with you and you're, you are in it together and you, you know, just calm down it'll be okay. (laughs) And you'll learn, they'll learn and you'll make mistakes, but you know, you'll be surprised at how, you know, people will respond and, you know, give you that grace. And it, but it took me a long time to learn that. So, yeah, I think that's what I would tell young me. And that was our conversation with Elizabeth Barron. You can find out more about Elizabeth's work with Unity at unity.com. The Sparkcast is a production of the Spark Computer Graphics Society. Opening and closing credits by Michael Edland. Editing and additional production support by Joshua Peterman. For more about SparkCG and our upcoming events, visit sparkcg.org.